Valley's Radio. There it is. The Somerset get themselves over the line emphatically to defeat the reigning champions, Hampshire. It's time for Let's Talk Cricket. For all your latest cricketing news and debate. Here's the single. Yes, England have tied the match. England have tied the match. And Stokes has the strike. Jack Leach, you are my hero. The greatest one of all time. Good evening and welcome to Let's Talk Cricket here on Free Valleys Radio. Of course, another busy week in the news. Um, I suppose apparently multiple people throwing the hat in the ring to become the next Prime Minister. Don't know why that's important, but there we go. I wonder, it'd be interesting, Johnny, wouldn't it? If... Uh, this kind of process happened to become the next England Test captain. What do you reckon? How do you reckon that would go down? Do you reckon there would be some form of like super over people have to go through to show off their credentials? Do you reckon there would be such things as a manifesto for an England captain? <laughs> uh, do you know, I would love to see a manifesto for an England captain. Uh, good evening, by the way, George. Um, I would love to see, uh, you know, the different respective players set out their stores for how they want to play their game. You know, to be fair, if Ben Stokes had set this out in his manifesto, I almost certainly would not have voted for him, being quite a risk-averse person. But it seems to be working. Um, you know, do you want strong and steady, or do you want uh, uh, what was it—a coalition of chaos under Stokes, perhaps? Um, but yeah, who knows? All these political slogans would go well with some of these former England Test captains. Um, more realistically, it would almost almost certainly be decided by a very boring election process from members of the MCC sat in the long room in Lords. Um, I think that just says more about what I make of the MCC and the ECB than anything else. How have you been this week, George, mate? You well? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad at all. <laughs> been a very long weekend, not playing cricket. I've been away uh, this weekend doing uh, all things Duke of Edinburgh, which is very nice in the weather. So I've been keeping an eye on various things while I play cricket. And uh, obviously on radio, radio commentaries and things to find out how well different sides have gone on over the weekend with the Vitality Blast. But, you know, I think uh, going back to the point about, you know, if there was an election based on uh, captains and things, I think if it was definitely club captain, I think the biggest the biggest manifesto winner would be bringing back the cricket tea, do you not think? Oh, well, we've had long uh, and, and lengthy discussions about this in the past. I would, I would absolutely love to see it, but there does need to be a minimum standard. So if you can introduce cricket teas and also an independent regulator of cricket teas to ensure a high quality and high value of those provided. And I think that'd be absolutely perfect. Um, I do miss it. Uh, I miss it very much. Although I do like having the creativity to make my own lunches, which about 50% of the time I do. 50% of the time it might just be a Greg sausage roll or something. Um, other sausage rolls are available. I know we're not on the BBC, but I still feel duty bound to say it. <laughs> um, but I do remember some clubs used to have absolutely atrocious teas or some clubs would have it it's so nice that you gorge feed at the break and then you're fit for nothing when you go back onto the field so I do miss them I'm really looking forward to the one your mum does in Somerset I must admit um, probably the highlight of the trip actually I think um, but I, I do miss them hugely I do miss them hugely that being said I will name and shame uh, Gosport Challengers as providing the worst tea that I think I've ever had before um, I'm sure they won't listen why would they they're in Hampshire but there we go you know I've got to admit nothing wrong with a bit of a Greg sausage roll like I said other sausage rolls are available I think one of my finest captaincy moments a couple of weeks ago was for the team talk munching on a sausage roll before I got to that point but there we go <laughs> a, vote, a vote for me as your England captain is a vote for a Greg sausage roll before a team time chat but there we go but it's all been quite a busy week really hasn't it if you think about it you know Vitality Blast Court Finals Finals Days were approaching 
this Saturday. England versus India in the three uh, T20s. We've obviously seen the uh, start of the women's ODI taking place as well. We've uh, they've got lots of last cricket. Obviously, the camp championships back, which is absolutely fantastic. So there's lots of cricket to enjoy. Obviously, finals day is probably what we're going to be focusing perhaps more on this evening than anything else. But we will be, of course, wrapping up Butler's first proper go as England captain, officially England captain. Obviously, we know he's the captain quite a few times. So there's going to be a bit of an element going into there, going into shape. But something I want to start with, Johnny. Have you seen, again, there are other TV channels available. But have you seen on, on BBC One on Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock, Freddie Flintoff's Field of Dreams? I have indeed, George, and I, I don't know about you, I think it's absolutely wonderful. A, he's a, a, an absolutely magnetic television presenter, which I think is quite something. And B, it's also a very, very well-timed and well-judged look into the public perception of cricket, particularly amongst young people. And I just, I hugely enjoyed watching it. Um, it's one of those shows that I want to be able to binge, but I'm being very, very restrained and I'm limiting myself. What have you made of it so far? Have you been watching yeah, yeah, I've been watching very much so, and I think it's been really, really nice to see something that I think has been talked about quite a few times on the show, whenever we've had a guest on, they've mentioned it, and obviously it's talked quite a bit, you know, around the around the club cricket, for club cricket to survive, you know, a lot of club cricket are relying on, you know, private and public schools to find their players, and actually quite a lot of second secondary school kids, state school kids, aren't playing cricket, you know, they might be playing a form of cricket, but... They're not really coming to that cricket. And I think, actually, what Freddie Vendorf's trying to highlight in this is this idea of whether cricket is an elitist sport, you know? I know that perhaps the roots come from that when you think about the gentlemen's changing room and then the ordinary men's changing room. If you go back to the Victorian period, it's all thinking about that. But obviously, cricket's moved on a long period of time from that. But obviously, the worrying side is, similar to when you think about lots of different things in, in, um, in our society, when you start to look at the percentages and you think about the amount of players that are currently playing in the England team... How many of them actually come from state schools? And it's not many at all. So it's definitely something, you know, that needs to be addressed. And in particular, the ECB need to look at it, you know, and address it. And I know club cricketers and club, clubs up and down the country are trying to tackle this issue, you know, whether it's getting posters into local local schools, whether it's trying to adapt and evolve their, um, you know, their youth set up. And I think one of the biggest things people are looking towards at the moment, Johnny, is uh, the All-Stars, trying to get those youngsters in, getting families down to clubs, you know, maybe enjoying a beer or being a burger after after training, really trying to get that atmosphere. Because unfortunately, if this doesn't happen, we don't, and cricket doesn't branch out to you know these different estates up and down the country. Then where's cricket? Where's cricket going to be in this country in twenty twenty five years time? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Now, as as we've said, I'm sure on multiple different occasions, cricket always seems to be in a state of perpetual crisis, um, and I think this is just the latest highlight to it. You know? Um, when it comes to widening participation in the game, when it comes to you know broadening out support of the sport at a yeah, at a grassroots level, even in the women's game as well, there are those that are pushing really hard to to broaden it out. And I would encourage you, Jordan. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's only been doing the rounds on on cricket Twitter. It's called Daisy Cutter, which is uh, it's about highlighting and broadening out um, the women's game um, as well as LGBTQ plus community in the sport which is, you know, it seems to be a really, really effective way of, sort of, of widening the participation and awareness of the game. When it comes to, you know, those kids from, you know, more disadvantaged backgrounds who maybe don't have the same access to cricket, I think this, this documentary is a really accessible way to show it. Now, it's probably only going to be watched by cricket fans, right? It's like the 100, you know, people who are going to go to it, people that are already going to go and watch the sport. But 
I think the more awareness is out there, the more funding there's likely to be, the more funding there is, the more you know, services can be uh, rolled out to these communities. It's quite easy, I think, for me and you to sit here and chat about it because, yeah, I don't know about you, but my, my school was massively into cricket, um, which meant that I played it from quite a young age. Whereas I think, George, you, you sort of more came into it through your family, didn't you? Yeah, I think that was the way. Like, I think cricket, we, I played cricket from quite a young age. Um, so 2003 was my first sort of season of cricket. I think I was age um, six at the time, you know. I remember getting involved with cricket that way, seeing it on the... You know, on Channel 4 when England were playing in the West Indies in that series. And that's all when I grew into, you know. I went through the comprehensive school system. Cricket wasn't really a big thing. The, the, the sports at the time was really, you know, football, rugby, tennis, athletics. And cricket occasionally got played, but it wasn't like proper cricket. It was quick cricket, you know. And obviously that was sort of the way that people go into. And obviously I kind of just fell, fell in love with the game, you know, watching my brother play. And then going on and joining, and then obviously I'd go down to coaching on a Saturday off, Saturday morning. You know, parents push me along to go to these coaching, uh, like summer holiday clubs that uh, Somerset coaches were running down down the county grounds. Sort of doing my skills awards from level one all the way to level five, and that's sort of the way I got into it really. And to be honest, part of me, part of me, the reason why I think I enjoyed cricket, and again, it's part probably down to this reason that it wasn't a sport that everyone loved, and it wasn't a sport that everyone wanted to enjoy. And I kind of felt at the time when I was at school and I was saying, oh, I like cricket, I love cricket, you know. I kind of felt like I was probably one of the... Obviously, I'm not, I'm not a very good player. You know, I'm, I'm an average player. I can, I, can, you know, I can do a job of some sort. But at the time, I thought I was a really good player, you know. And actually, that for me meant a lot. Like, I had a sport that not many people enjoyed because, of course, everyone loves football. Everyone wants to be, you know, Wayne Rooney or Thierry Henry or, you know, Rio Ferdinand, so on and so forth. In, when, you're playing, when you're playing at break and lunchtime, you know, but no one, no one ever really heard of Marcus Druscovic, Kevin Peterson, Stuart Broad, Jimmy Anderson when you were when you were playing cricket, and that was the kind of thing. That was the kind of thing I think I grew up on was the fact that there wasn't many people at my school that were into cricket as much as I was, and I think that's what pushed my drive and hunger to go on and play cricket a bit more. And obviously, then as I got a bit older, when it came to secondary school, when I was ten or eleven, I remember opening the batting. I've said multiple times on the show, opening the batting with uh, with my dad and. Um, really sort of um, going into there and learning my trade, learning to value my wicket. Obviously, I know we can laugh and giggle over some of my dismissals this season, perhaps not valuing my wicket as much, but, you know, that's sort of how I got into cricket, that sort of sense of community, you know. I think um, playing in playing the cricket down in Somerset in particular, you know, especially Sunday, 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 after Sunday friendly cricket was my bread and butter, how you learn things. And that's how you get people into the game, you know. You need to have that right youth set up, you know. Youth set up that's going to get everyone involved, you know. Everyone's going to get a go. Everyone's going to get a chance. There's not going to be one or two players because I think that's the problem. Sometimes you find with cricket when people go along to these clubs and want to go and start playing. You see, obviously, there's highlighted two or three really good cricketers and really exceptional cricketers that you can see is going to have a very good, perfect, you no, know, either you know, a very good professional amateur career at the top level, you know, in the Weppel leagues or the top of uh, their county divisions. And sometimes those players, like perhaps like myself or other people around, might not get that much of a go. And I think. When it comes to setting up youth setups, you know, and similar to how we've tried to set up our, you know, our little pub team at the Arbor, you know, giving everyone a go, giving everyone an opportunity to uh, try out the game, I think that's the way forward, and that's how you keep players. And then slowly over time, you start to involve them into the uh, into the adult setup. Does that answer your question in a way? I think so. I think so. A good answer. I've not really. I don't think we've ever actually spoken about how we got into the sport before. Um, I just sort of presumed you played it at school. 
but that possibly says more about me than it says about you. But like, I obviously I knew your dad played, and that your dad was involved with your local club. But yeah, it's, that's that's good. That's enjoyable. I I, and I I I liked hearing it. I mean, we we were fortunate that my school had a cricket pitch and nets. Yeah, like we you know we didn't have that. You know, we were lucky. We probably had the blue plastic bats and the blue plastic balls. You know, and I always remember playing a bit of cricket when I was in year six. Um, again, one of the only odd occasions, and someone was batting and the ball got bowled and they, they lost control of the bat and hit someone straight in the eye and that was the end of our cricket for that season, you know. <laughs> you know, we you know Sorry, that's awful. I don't know why I laughed at that. Yeah, I know, and um his eye completely got, you know, proper black eye and it was just like, Well that's the end of cricket then, we're not playing cricket now. We're gonna have to go back to playing, you know, uh Cavadi or was it all jumping in the long jump pit, you know, all those kind of different things that we sort of take place. But you know, uh, my dad obviously was into his cricket. My at the time when my grandma was a bit younger. She was the secretary for Stokes of Hamden Cricket Club for a long period of time. And my dad, obviously, when he was a bit younger, was bowling a bit fast and a bit quicker. I always remember hearing these stories from my uncle Mike, um, talking about how my dad used to bowl uh, deadly bouncers at perhaps bowl, perhaps at younger players that shouldn't be facing bouncers. And, you know, and a bit of competitiveness when he was umpiring my dad. Always, always a funny story around uh, when, when the family came together. But there was a period of time where my dad then stopped playing cricket. There was a period, you know, he would just play would just play football and uh, cricket kind of disappeared from his life and um, it was only kind of in a point of time where family friends were looking for uh, players and they wondered whether my brother might like to play and then all of a sudden my brother got into cricket my dad then offered to help coach he then got his level one coaching badge then his level two coaching badge and then of course then I'd go along and watch and I was like yeah I'm a fan. I fancy ever going this let's let's go in that way and, you know from that moment on we were hooked and then that's that's how you get people hooked in and then when you have a when you have a good club set up and people want to stay at the club, you know, want to socialise after games, want to be involved in that community game, that's how you build up, you know, these good setups. And this is where I think grassroots cricket is really, really important. And going back to this point where we're talking about with what Freddie Flintoff's trying to do is fill the dreams. I think that's vastly important. Showing people what the game's about. Like I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw there was particularly the young lad who was struggling to hit the ball. And he'd gone out, he was a bit nervous about going out to field, but then he went out to bat and he was hitting some runs. And it was, and it was just that nurturing way between the two sides. And what a fantastic pitch it was up in the, uh, up in the Lake District they played, wasn't it? It was, it was. It's a part of the, um, it's a part of the UK that's, you know, deceptively not flat as well. <laughs> so it's really quite hard to get some good pitches up there. But I did like all the chatter about like the cricket whites and the jumpers. I don't know if you saw all that bit as well. When they're even they're talking about that is actually symbolic of sort of the elitism of the game, and it is a bit of a hangover to the Victorian era, isn't it? Um, and yeah, we were even talking about this in the past. Well, this will be my last anecdote on the subject, and then we can talk about the real stuff. But we were even talking and joking in the pub uh, on uh, Sunday. So we, we, you know, we've got another pub game this week, and uh, one of our guys was joking like we should do the old uh, amateur professional distinction, whereby the uh, the professionals. And you know, their names are listed in full, but after the amateurs, you have their Mister and initials and Esquire afterwards. And we joked about it for a moment before we realised actually that's awful that that's still a joke in the game. Um, and you remember that actually the distinction between amateurs and professionals has been going on for less than it actually existed in the in the sport. So um, there's definitely still some classism latent uh, in in the sport that we love so much. And the fact that the two of us are sat here talking about it is probably you know, entrenches it a little bit further. Um, 
but it is good that there are these very clear moves to, to widen the participation and the enjoyment of the sport and branch it out to a wider audience. I hope it works and I hope you know new generations of young people are inspired to take part in this summer, you know, with all the free tickets at Lords and uh, not not Lords, famous not Lords, but at Headingley, Trent Bridge, you know, just to get young people into the game, it's it's a good summer for it and I, I hope it takes off with or without the hundred. And I, I think the final thing I'm gonna say, Johnny, on this issue, like I said before we move on, is I think it's great to see these new competitions. It's great to see exciting cricket, you know, four fantastic games of quarterfinal action, you know, really coming into place. But I think, you know, grassroots cricket now is calling out for getting county coaches, local level coaches into state schools and going in and, and, and you know, taking over four or five weeks, running a free cricket cricket club after school, running a free cricket club, you know, giving the equipment in that way. Because I think, yes, it's great seeing these new people coming to the game of the 100 and the T20 and obviously free tickets. But actually, the only way I generally feel, the only way someone's going to get involved in the game is actually giving it a go themselves in a, in a, in a non-confrontational, a non-worried, a non-sort of embarrassing way of doing it and just giving it a go in their sort of surroundings where they're not going to feel under pressure to, to do well and just enjoy, you know, the ball hitting the bat, you know. There's no greater feeling, I think, than you may disagree. There's no greater feeling than the ball coming out of the middle of the bat. You know, there's no greater feeling, perhaps for a bowler, seeing the off stump flying out of the ground. You know, and, you know, people need to need to experience that for the first time. And I think you've got to experience that, you know, straight out, straight away after you've seen a, seen a cricket match, you know, especially after you've seen Somerset and what they did the Darv show over the weekend. Come on, that was, that was unbelievable. And I think... Um, I think, you know, maybe it's got to be something that maybe the ECB, county, county cricket clubs have got to look at. Maybe getting those, making sure, I know they do a lot of these family zone areas, but maybe taking some opportunity for those, you know, those simple drills and give it a go tryouts. You know, the bowling machine, the uh, bowling speed gun is normally quite a popular one, but there's a few more options of those really to make, get more kids involved. Absolutely. Anything that broadens the support of the game and broadens the amount of people playing it is a good thing. So any of these schemes that come through, I would welcome with open arms just because it's the sport that we love. And I think it is also important to acknowledge the problems in the game. Yeah, it's, it's all very well documented this year and last. Uh, the issues around racism in the sport, Edge Baston um, highlighted that in the India test um, where there were several incidents reported in the, in the crowd. And the fact that I think we are starting as a, as a sport now to acknowledge the problems with elitism in it um, would suggest that we're moving in the right direction, but I think there is an awful lot of work to go yet before the the future of 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 cricket in the UK is secured. Um, but I think we are going in the right direction. Hey, are you going to the Yeovil Ukulele Festival? Sunday, the fourth of September, at Haysbury Mill near Crookern. 11 o'clock in the morning till 9 at night with big acts from the ukulele world including Plastic Jesus, Tricity Vogue, The Hedge Inspectors, 80s icon Sam Brown, Pete Brown, Hester Goodman from the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain and local duo in sync. Now there's a famous talky queen, she looks a flapper on the screen, she's more like... Tickets are available from the website www.yovelukulele.club and on the door and it's all in aid of mind in Somerset 
There'll be performances across two stages, workshops, strum and sing-alongs, trade stands, food, raffle and more. So make sure you get there. September the 4th at Hazelbury Mill near Crookhead. Time to talk about the T20 uh, Vitality Blast then. Obviously, celebrating its 20th year of uh, T20 cricket in domestic English cricket. And we were treated to, I would say, four quality uh, quarterfinals. And I think, by far, as much obviously as I want to talk about the Somerset's uh, you know, record-breaking success in their game, I think there's no better place to start than uh, Wednesday, 6th of July, Surrey hosting Yorkshire, and perhaps two of the biggest sort of titans in English cricket going head-to-head against each other and ultimately seeing a fantastic game of cricket coming to um, come to shape. And obviously, Yorkshire batted first and uh, posted a score of 160 for five at the Oval. Uh, some of such new signing, to Tom Coder-Cadmore hitting 62 or 48 balls. David Woody hitting 30. You know, some of the top scores, frame 32 not out, were notable, uh, notable scores. Jamie Overton... We're going to come on to talk about a bit later. Didn't actually bowl in this game, but did contribute with three catches and, and a fantastic 40 runs he hit later on. And it always looked like, I always felt like in this game, Johnny, I don't know about you, that Surrey were going to get over the line, you know. But then when you see Rory Burns hitting 20 out of 27, Tom Curran 36 of 28, uh, Laurie Evans finishing 35 not out, Jamie Overton 40 runs off 21 balls, including four sixes and one four. Fantastic runner by Cola Cadmore to get him out, you know. And then you saw come of the hour, uh, come of Thompson, you know, and Thompson bowling this unbelievable spell to keep calm and collective under pressure. And actually, seeing Yorkshire win by one run, winning by one run, what was your thoughts on this first court final? Um, I mean, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it very much. I think we, we did a little bit of it <coughs> on last week's show as well. Because I remember commenting on... Uh, David Willey's proper Sunday League village moment of uh, turning up by having left most of his gear up the motorway. Um, I think he played in Harry Brooks' shirt and he'd taped over his lid and he'd taped over the sponsorship of his pads. Um, but it was it was a hugely enjoyable game and it set the tempo, I think, for this round of fixtures. Um, you know, quite a lot to play for here. A lot of teams really trying out. I think Surrey may have may have peaked too soon. You know, they were by far the strongest team in the Southern group. Uh, for the first you know, 10 fixtures but they seem to have uh, you know, hit a, a point of diminishing returns where they weren't just getting the results they needed um, not to take anything away from the, the quality of, of, of Yorkshire's play like they did extraordinarily well to recover from Adam Life uh, going first ball um, you know he's normally a, a, a stalwart of the Yorkshire batting lineup. but Tom Cola Cadmore and David Willey um, ably backed up by Will Frayne at the end were able to post a competitive and defendable total. Um, Surrey, I think, just just fell short to some clever uh, death bowling and you know maybe a slightly slower run rate than would would ordinarily have been expected. You know, Jacks, Burns, Curran, Pope, even all really failed to push on at the necessary pace, and it was left up to the middle and lower orders to try and try and get them over the line. You know, Jamie Overton being the notable exception, I suppose. Sonal Marine going quite cheaply, but Jordan Thompson kept his head. And yeah, that's the sort of performance you need at this at this level. I think it's probably one of the stronger bowling performances to defend a total 
um, that, that we'd seen so far in the quarterfinals. A really strong showing. Um, and uh, I think deserved for Yorkshire um, to, to see them through to finals day. And then obviously the next game, having on the 7th of July, Birmingham Bears hosting the Hampshire Hawks. And I'll be honest with Johnny, I wasn't expecting Hampshire to get to this. When, we, when they lost 4-4 four four, lost four and four in the first opening four games, wasn't particularly pressed with their overseas players, you know, in Edison McDermott. But McDermott's come good quite recently, you know, 61 of 36, being bowled by Carlos Brathwaite. Vince at the top, 31, obviously adding to, you know, some really good season for him with the Vitality T20+. Two hundreds he's had so far this season. Weatherly forty-seven. Whiteley, I think, has been a little bit disappointing for you. I don't think he's really got going in the middle order. So maybe he might. Well, I hope he doesn't. When we come to that a bit later, uh, get firing in finals day. But you know, you never know. And they Hampshire host post the score of one hundred eighty-six for six. Four wickets for Carlos Braffrate. Four overs. Four for thirty. And you thought game on at Edgebaston. You thought game on. Birmingham would be right up this. And then. They just got blown away. Bowled out for 82 all out. You know, four wickets for Fuller, who's had an unbelievable uh, T20 uh, blast series, both for bat and ball. Three wickets for Nathan Ellis. <laughs> 1.3 overs, three wickets, four runs. It's mad. And then two wickets for Brad Will, and then one wicket for Crane, you know. As a Hampshire fan, that must really bring a smile to your face. As a, you know, as a Hampshire fan, I always had faith. Um, although I've almost certainly slated their, their white ball prospects this season earlier on. Um, but they've almost been the opposite of Surrey. If Surrey started so strongly and tailed off, I think it just took the Hampshire boys a while to, to get into gear. Um, I think this is this has encapsulated exactly how the Hampshire team can work together because everyone did their job as they were supposed to. McDermott and Vince put up the scores at the top of the order. Shame about Tom Prest. We know he's going to be good, but he's getting a decent run out the side. Weatherly and Whiteley pushed on in the middle. And uh, with the bowling, you know, I think you've already summed it up quite nicely. Although Chris Wood didn't quite put in the performance we'd expect from him. Nathan Ellis, bit of a slow start to the season, you say, but bowled superbly. You know, ably backed up by Brad Wheel and James Fuller. I think it was just an all-round strong performance from Hampshire. Now, maybe not the strongest, most dominant performance we saw in this in this game week. Um, but certainly one that I think marked Hampshire as a real prospect um, uh, through to finals day. Um, it's going to be so exciting to have a rerun of last year's semis. You know, I think uh, we'll get there in a minute. Obviously, yeah, once we've talked about the Somerset result, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of strength in this Hampshire side, and they were able to edge out a particularly strong Birmingham side as well. You know, Paul Sterling started the season brilliantly, but has not really been able to find the same run of form. Obviously, Brathwaite, Lintot, Miles, and Briggs. I think Briggs is the top T20 blast wicket taker of all time. You know, they have a strong and experienced side here, and Hampshire were just able to. to to do the basics and do it very, very well. So as a Hampshire fan, absolutely delighted. Um, I think good for their prospects this season as well, where they can be very good contenders for both the white ball and the red ball crowns. I think testament to the, the depth of their squad and their good all-round abilities. And then, um, so they won by 104 runs. So there was our two uh, first uh, sort of semi-finalists. We saw Yorkshire and Hampshire through. Then we saw Lancashire hosting Essex. And Essex batted first, posted a score of 161 for five. Pepper really coming of coming of age in this sort of game. 36, Walter 34, Sam's 25 with the, um, Rossington at the top of the order. He's obviously now signed a three-year deal to keep him at Essex uh, going forward. Obviously permanently moving from Northamptonshire. Saw them uh, post a score of 161 for five. Two wickets, two wickets for Wood, one for Hartley, one for Lamb, one for Wells. And you'd think again. 
bit below par, game on here for Lancashire. And, you know, and Lancashire did it quite comfortably, you know. 27 at the top of the order from Salt. Standout player, Simon Croft. And when is he always? He's always standing up to giving Prince Hannett for contribution. 76 not out. 48 balls, 5 fours and 4 sixes. Well supported by Dane Villas, uh, who hit 51 of 23 balls. And that really put the game to bed, you know. There was a couple, there was one wicket for, for Critchley, one run out for S. Cook, and one wicket for Harmer. But that was really, you know, Lancashire Lightning winning by seven wickets. And, you know, just think, game on. And, you know, Lancashire cruising there, really jolly. And, again, another strong side in this T20 finals day. Indeed, cruising through to a, a Roses, uh, Roses semi-final which will be very exciting to see plenty to play for there. I do feel incredibly sorry for Keaton Jennings, though. Did you see his dismissal run out without facing a ball? Unfortunate stuff, particularly at this level of the game. It didn't matter in the end, uh, as Lancashire were able to romp home quite comfortably. Uh, but my personal highlight, and a, a nice sort of uh, a little scoreboard anecdote, is Pepper stumped by Salt, which I think stood out for me quite nicely in this fixture. Uh, but yeah, two strong teams. Uh, yeah, I think Lancashire always going to edge them out um, just with the, yeah, the more explosive batting they have and the experience that that side brings. Um, but an exciting uh, exciting Yorkshire Lanx uh, semi-final um, will mean a nicely contested North versus South final as well, which I'm looking forward to. I suppose we probably should talk about Somerset next, shouldn't we? I mean, listening to this, not being able to watch this was so frustrating. So I was in the middle of a campsite in the Test Valley doing me assessing for this bronze DV group that by the way all passed so congratulations to them really good job they did and you know I'd regularly get updates and you know 265 for 5 off 20 overs can you believe it you know that record's been broken I was only talking a few a few shows ago when someone said you know I always remember back in 2006 with the 250 that got hit we you know Justin Langer with 90 Cameron White with over 116 I think it was Matthew Wood chipping in Keith Parsons even coming in with a couple of runs towards the end against Gloucestershire. I remember that being such a big result. And one that hadn't been knocked off um, for a while. But then this year we've seen quite a few results that have gone 2-5-2, 2-5-8, 2-6-2. And, uh, you know, someone set batting first at home. At home is the Cooper Associates counter ground. We're always going to give it a good go. And I think they were always going to go over approach of attacking hard. And obviously Somerset uh, taunted itself is considered to be one of the highest scoring T20 grounds in the country. And when you've got the opening partnership with Smead and Banton, you've got to watch out, really. I know Smead didn't really get going in this uh, in this game, but Banton did. I mean, Banton's been perhaps in the way of being struggling, but for the last few games, it's really come good. Some fantastic reverse sweeps, you know, and slog sweeps all going in, you know, 73 or 41 balls. Him and, him and Riley Russo's partnership was mad. Absolutely mad, you know. 49 for 1 when they lost Smead, 151 for 2 in the 13th over when Bantam went and then Riley Russo um, got to 93 a bit unfortunate not to get um, get a century but obviously he was going for that big shot 93 of 36 balls a strike rate of 258.33 I believe he averages exactly uh, over 50 now with his strike rate looking ridiculous at around 200 or so so he's looking good he's looking fired up ready to go for this finals day Seven sixes, eight fours, and then particularly completely took apart McKieran, um, who I think went for 36 and over. And did you see his, and um, you know, six, six, four, a no ball where the leg spinner bottled the ball off off the pitch. Didn't even land on the pitch, and the keeper had to dive and slip. I think Slip managed to get it in the end. Yeah. So it was six, six after that. 
I think I'm not correct in saying that Matty McKiernan uh, now has the worst stats in T20 Blast cricket, which I think uh, will come as, as, as music to the ears of, uh, of Tango over at Somerset, who I think, didn't he go for 65 or for four overs at one point? Yeah, yeah, so um, he did indeed. And obviously, McKiernan has obviously got the worst figures in domestic English T20 cricket. Four overs, naught for 82. Lannaby then comes and hits 31 off nine balls. And then Green just does damage two lovely sixes, gives Somerset the record, 265 for five. Highest scoring domestic English score, we should mention. So that is the record in T20 cricket in England. Obviously, there's been some higher scores being made up through this Afghanistan Island, I think was the uh, particular result. But I do want to mention one bowler for Derbyshire who bowled fantastically well. Spare thought for Scrimshaw, four overs, two wickets for 16 runs. Conway at four, four and over. He did his job, you know, bowling two of those overs in the power play. It was everyone else going for 12s, 15s, <laughs> 20s, 13, 19, you know. And you must have thought when you're walking off Derbyshire away down at Somerset, can't imagine these guys have played a lot of T20 uh, cricket against each other. They must have been shell shots, you know. So how would you go? But how would you go about? I'm being generally serious, but how would you go about chasing a score of that statue when a side, a batting side, is powerful as Sunset? You know, we've always talked about them having these big pinch hitters. If one of these people don't get you, the other one might, and they all fired on all cylinders pretty much. And I just hope, I just hope this isn't their final. Because we talked about this last, we, well, we talked about this last season, didn't we, with the uh, semi-final with Hampshire, which obviously we can get onto in a bit. In a bit, but you know, we saw this last time, and where actually ultimately, um, Somerset played their final in the semi-final to get across the line. They weren't able to find that final steam to win finals day last year. So Derbyshire then, um, but all out, all out for seventy-four. I don't think there's anything really much to say about it. Some fantastic bowling. You know, uh, one wicket for Craig Overton was a little bit expensive, but it took one wicket. Three wickets for Pete Siddle, three wickets for 10 runs, who uh, is captaining, he's captaining the first, is captaining the county championship side this season, and uh, also this season, uh, this game against Lancashire at Stockport, due to the fact that Tom Banton's going to be captaining the England Lions side. Uh, Gregory with two wickets. There's always been a question of whether Gregory's a batsman that bowls, whether he's a bowler that bats. He seems to always perform a performance in either one of them. And then Ben Green. It's been a very good season for Ben Green this T20 uh, T20 career. Obviously going to be the 50-over captain again this season. Three wickets of 17 runs. Derbyshire um, managed to avoid being the lowest scoring um, scoring game for them by, by two runs, I believe it was, being bowled up for 74 all out. But they did lose by 191 runs, which meant that was probably the biggest um, defeat in the T20 blast. Ever as well, so that was another record that was broken at Taunton, and I think Johnny, I've pretty much explained that quite carefully. Is there anything you can like to add? I think that's a good description. Um, it was a, a it, well, poor Derbyshire. <laughs> I think, as you say, what do you do when you go out against a side that's put two hundred and fifty-six past you? And yeah, you know, sometimes big totals can you know result in quite exciting chases because the batsmen, knowing they've got to go big, throw caution to the wind immediately, and sometimes it takes off. Just on this occasion, when the highest scoring batsman was uh, you know, scored fourteen, uh, it obviously didn't materialise. But yeah, you know, do do spare a thought for for poor Matty McKinnon. You know he bowled quite tightly so far all competition, and then you saw he was trying to do everything. Just something, anything different to get at Russo. He's coming around the wicket, coming over the wicket, trying to bowl it on a different strip. 
you know, he tried to do everything he could to get a bit of variation and he still got pummeled for 36. But it was just a, 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 an entirely one-sided, dominant Somerset performance. Um, everyone who needed to play their part seemed to. There wasn't a weak link in this Somerset side. Uh, and again, I, I sincerely hope that the, uh, the semi-final against Hampshire was exciting, uh, but one in which Somerset will ultimately fall short. Um, but, I, you know, I'm just looking for a good game of cricket, you know. Finals day is always quite exciting in the blast, and I think all of these teams deserve to be here. All of them have put in dominant match-winning performances, and I think it's going to lead to a very exciting uh, set of semis, and hopefully a very exciting final as well. I think what the exciting thing is for me is um, Yorkshire versus uh, Lancashire. Obviously, there's so much history behind that Roses clash. It's an excellent, you know, semi first semi-final, and obviously all the history that Somerset and Hampshire have. In the T20 finals day, you know, they've always, always one of them will get the upper hand in his games. And, you know, I still have nightmares about the 2010 T20 finals day where uh, we were robbed. We were robbed of victory, but we won't go there. We're not, not the time or the place to go from that. And I think, actually, I think as much as I would have liked to have faced anyone but Hampshire, I think it's quite fitting that it's going to be Hampshire in the semi-final. And I think that's going to be a really positive uh, T20 finals day. I'd love to, I love for my, just for, you know, being a man that's, I've often been described recently, Johnny Bell, cricket teammates, as being a man of superstition. I think if it, I think if it turns to be Somerset Lancashire in the final, can you remember the last time these two played in the T20 final? Do you know what the result was? I do not. Uh, so it, was back, it was back in 2005 at the Oval. I went to watch it and uh, Somerset, this was the only time that Somerset won the T20 Cup. So, bring on a Lancashire, Lancashire Somerset final for Somerset to bring home a bit of silverware from that. And all, but in all seriousness, I'm obviously going to be back in Somerset. I don't think there's. I think they are going to come good. I think you know they're going to get over that suffering defeat of last time. I'm hoping that you know Riley Russo is going to fire against his old club again. Pitt Siddle, I think making that change, swapping him with Marshall Delanger in the side, it's been really really positive. But I think actually, I'm probably going to say this, and it's going to disappoint some of our listeners. I think this is probably one of the widest open um, T20 Blast Finals Day we've had in a long, long time. You know, some people just scrape through to Finals Day, but actually, these four teams rightly should be at Finals Day. From a neutral perspective, then, are you going with Hampshire, or do you think you know there'll be another team that will win? Oh, I'm I'm not coming from a neutral perspective. I'm coming solely from a Hampshire fans' perspective. Um, I I genuinely think that Somerset have the edge in the semi-final because um, Somerset have come off the run of a, of a good run of fixtures they've just absolutely battered Derbyshire Russo's confidence in batting is absolutely sky high and I think Somerset have the better and more consistent bowling depth so actually I, as much as I want Hampshire to win I think Somerset are going to reg out the semi uh, Yorkshire, Lancashire I couldn't separate I think for me they've got almost this identical strengths and weaknesses, and I don't think it's it's going to come down to you know who blinks first on the day. Um, I actually foresee that one being quite a cagey game, uh, you know, potentially quite sort of medium low scores in which both sides are trying to like edge the other out. But I, I'm hoping for fireworks in Hampshire Somerset. I think Hampshire have got a lot to play for off the last year's semi final defeat. Somerset have just got a lot to play for in general because they're the perennial bridesmaids in these competitions. Uh, but I think Somerset will edge it, disappointingly. And I'm saying this knowing full well that most of my predictions are wrong, uh, except last week when I got them all right. Uh, so we shall wait and see. Also, I've got four Somerset players in my fantasy cricket team, so I'm hoping that gives them the edge and gives me the edge. 
So are you saying then Somerset win at finals day? Is this what we're saying? I Somerset will make it to the final, I think. Uh, it just depends which Yorkshire and Lancashire side turn out. will depend on whether Somerset win or not. But I'm, I'm, I just think Somerset have got the strongest side on paper, you know? So, uh, regardless of what happens, Johnny, are we going to, after cricket, we're going to, of course, I'm going to bat really badly, like I always do, to make sure we can get to the pub to watch the final. Are we up for watching the final after after the, after we lose another game of cricket? No, of course we are. Of course we are. So we'll be able to talk about it more next week about, regardless of what the result is, talking about that, and obviously all things count championship coming to that point. So that is our little roundup of the uh, final day, all the best for Somerset, who I feel it could finally be their year when it comes to the finals day. When I first started my business, I was hopeless at paperwork. My system involved bunging everything in a shoebox and sorting it out later, much later. Thank goodness for Chalmers Accountants. They soon put me on the right track. They work with businesses of all sizes, and they really know their stuff. Chalmers will provide you with a one-to-one service with your own personal account manager at one of their three local branches. For expert advice on how to make your business more successful, visit chalmersaccountants.co.uk and book your free initial consultation. At AJ Wakeley & Sons Family Funeral Directors, we know the importance of compassion and integrity. We also know how unfamiliar decisions can be so difficult at a time of family bereavement. We can provide a steadying influence just when you need it, guiding and helping you make the right decisions to reflect the kind of funeral that your loved one deserves. Visit our website, www.ajwakely.com, for more information or call Clive Wakely on 01935 479913. Okay, then finally, then, Johnny, um, before I hand over to yourself to go through reviewing the uh, T20 uh, International Series, I just want to ask you a couple of questions, really. Who do you think, uh, who do you think performs well in this India England series? And what did you make of Joss Butler's captaincy? It's a, a what? It's a good question. So, obviously, a disappointing first series as captain for Joss Butler. Um, plenty of, of, of things to take away from it. You know, plenty of strong performances. It also also shows, I think, the uh, the squad depth that England can call on in their white ball side. You know, even even when a lot of their first teamers have now retired or aren't fit, you, know, you can still count on yeah, Harry Brook coming into the side to make a difference. You can still count on um, Richard Gleeson, you know, the 34-year-old debutant who took three wickets on debut, including Barrett Coley's. You know, there's there's a lot to take away from it. I think that, that shows a high degree of positivity. I think the one thing that's been highlighted England are really missing is Adil Rashid's bowling. Now, I believe he's actually out of the side because he's making the annual pilgrimage uh, to Mecca. Um, so he will return for the, uh, the T20 World Cup. But it is clear, I think, that England are missing the control and the experience that his spin brings. You know, Livingston and Moeen Ali didn't really look as economical as Rashid often is. And they didn't pre- present quite the same sort of wicket-taking threat uh, that he does. Um, that being said, strong bowling performances across the board, really, for England. Um, you know, Chris Jordan in the first game, four overs, 23 runs for two wickets. Economical, controlled, measured. Uh, a good performance from him, and he's been performing so well in the T20 Blast you know, um, all, all summer anyway. And he followed that up with four wickets in the second game. 
you know, strong performances from Jordan. He just keeps on churning out these these good bowling displays for England. You know, he performs when it counts, and he's got all this white ball experience. Let's also talk about Richard Gleeson. Yeah, he made his uh, his first class debut at 27. Still hope, George, uh, and his England debut at 34. Yeah, it's a real success story. I think he was he was a teacher as well, wasn't he? Uh, Part time while he was doing his cricket, and yeah, his first game uh, in in the red shirt, the white ball side. He takes the wicket of uh, Rohit Sharma, Rishabh, Rishabh Pant, and Virat Kohli in the space of a few balls. Yeah, really exceptional stuff. I think what's let England down in this series is the batting. Um, you know, first two games simply not enough runs. You know, Butler's looked a bit shaky. Uh, a first baller in the first game, uh, and then falling cheaply. I think he got was it four in the second and eighteen in the third. Possibly the captaincy, the extra responsibility. You know, not agreeing with his his normal batting technique, but that even even Jason Roy struggled. You know, two pretty low scores and a really streaky twenty seven in Sunday's fixture don't really mark out these England openers as the the powerful match winning partnership they've been in the uh, in, in the past. I think the only batsman on the England side that really took off at any stage, I hate to say it, George was David Milan. Is that the only fifty in this England side in this competition? Yeah, and his, his 77 or 39, six fours, five sixes, really high strike rate, uh, set the tempo for England's win. You know, the only game in which they passed 200. Um, ably supported by Livingston, but not really much else to write home about in that. You, know, you need one of these batsmen to go big. And the measured approach by Milan, it seemed to work. He had a couple of starts in the other fixtures, 19 in the second game, 21 in the first but, you know, none of these big match-winning performances. But I think this is him returning to form and showing what a valuable asset he is to the white ball side. It's not to take anything away from India's performance. And they bowled extraordinarily well. They exercised a great deal of control. They stopped the England players scoring with the freedom that they normally do. Good captaincy by Sharma. But a, uh, a disappointing continuation for Virat Kohli, I think it's fair to say. A couple of dropped catches. You know, a few failures to crack on with the, with the bat. But I think it just came down to consistency. In India, with a more consistent side in the first two fixtures, you know, a good fifty by Hardik Pandya in the first game. Uh, you know, a, a, a few wickets for Pandya and Kumar and Singh and Patel in that first match. Regular wickets falling for England really sort of put the nail in the coffin in that first fixture, and they struggled to respond appropriately to the second. Jadeja's forty-six not out. You know, not exactly a a blistering knock, but certainly one that exercised enough control to see them over the line, despite the bowling of Gleeson and Jordan, um, meant that again India were just able to edge out England, who just seemed a little, you know, a little bit below par. You know, some of those big scores were missing. You know, no explosions in the middle order from Moeen Ali or Sam Curran. Harry Brook looked all right, but without really setting the world on fire. So it was a, a, a bit of a, a mixed bag for this England white ball side doesn't necessarily bode well for the T20 World Cup. And I think England are still missing a few players. They're definitely missing some express pace. Try as Topley and Gleeson might, there is still something missing there. But it was good to see England try something a bit different. Now, a few left-arm seamers chucked in, a few sort of mystery spin options put in the side as well, played about a little bit with the batting lineup. But I think as the World Cup approaches and there's a few more white ball series to get out of the way, Butler could do a lot worse than revert to type and just use that tried and tested method um, for the uh, the England white ball batting lineup, particularly once a few of those bigger players become available again.
an entertaining series, uh, but one uh, unfortunate for Butler, unfortunate for England, um, but a good 2-1 win for India. Okay, so we look forward to hearing more about that, Johnny, when you go for each of the games, and we'll see everything else in your weekend cricket. Hey, are you going to the Yeovil Ukulele Festival? Sunday the 4th of September at Haysbury Mill near Crookern. 11 o'clock in the morning till 9 at night with big acts from the ukulele world including Plastic Jesus, Tricity Vogue, The Hedge Inspectors, 80s icon Sam Brown, Pete Brown, Hester Goodman from the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain and local duo in sync. Tickets are available from the website www.yovelukulele.club and on the door. And it's all in aid of Mind in Somerset. There'll be performances across two stages, workshops, strum and sing-alongs, trade stands, food, raffle and more. So make sure you get there. September the 4th at Hazelbury Mill near Krugard. When I'm cleaning windows. Thank you, George. Uh, this evening's week in cricket will take in uh, two, maybe two and a half uh, fixtures and events and goings on uh, in the last seven days in the cricketing world. We'll start in Sri Lanka, uh, where the Sri Lankans put in one of the best uh, all-time performances their country's ever done uh, in the field against Australia, uh, routing them by an innings and 39 runs in the second test match. Uh, some wonderful displays from a few debutant players, uh, disappointment from Australia as uh, they were spun out uh, on the final day, uh, losing uh, all 10 of their wickets for uh, just over 100 runs. We'll also turn to the most recent women's ODI as uh, England women's uh, took on South Africa, another comfortable win uh, for the England women's side. And rather than spending any more time than is altogether necessary uh, assessing England's fairly comprehensive defeat uh, to India in the first ODI, we will look instead at the England Lions tour uh, as they played South Africa in their first match of the summer. As promised, we shall start then in Sri Lanka uh, for their innings and 39-run victory over Australia in the second Test match. It, it is fair, I think, to say that this is one of their great days as a team, particularly given the context coming into this match. I think there were four debutants on the pitch, uh, given the uh, the night before the fixture, there were several uh, announcements of, uh, of COVID cases amongst the team. Even putting it into perspective amongst the, uh, the goings-on in the country, you know, uh, popular protests in the streets, uh, uh, political protesters seizing the presidential palace uh, and uh, ousting, the, ousting the president, you know, people doing WWF-style wrestling in the beds and frolicking in the presidential pool. All of this, the backdrop. Uh, to Sri Lanka's victory over Australia. We'll look at two uh, uh, test best performances. Uh, Dinesh Chandamal's double century, a career best score for him and a, uh, a real statement piece uh, in this Sri Lankan batting lineup. And also the debut of Prabath Jayasuriya, who returned uh, best figures for a Sri Lankan on test debut 
uh, chalking up 12 wickets uh, in Sri Lanka's comprehensive defeat of Australia. Australia batted first, and I think we may have spoken about this on a previous show, but um, we saw Marlis Labashane and Stephen Smith both registering centuries. Smith unbeaten on 145. Uh, Labashane uh, stumped Dick Weller, um, being one of Jar Surya's victims, on 104. Now, they got off to a relatively poor start. David Warner dismissed quite cheaply his uh, poor run of form, by his standards at least, uh, continuing into the subcontinent. And they lost wickets at fairly consistent intervals. Usman Khawaja also falling cheaply for 37, opening the batting alongside David Warner, before Labuschagne and Smith were able to put on a partnership of sorts. Once Labuschagne was dismissed, Australia's tail fell away uh, relatively quickly, their last eight wickets uh, falling for a little over 100 runs, as Travis Head, Alex Carey, Mitchell Stark, Pat Cummins, Nathan Lyon and Mitchell Swepson were all dismissed relatively cheaply. Uh, Carey the only one to chalk up a score above 20 in the lower order. The pick of the bowlers, Prabath Jayasuriya, his six wickets coming at a little expensive, 118 runs from 36 overs, uh, but a, a good bowling display from him. Australia's troubles against left arm spin continuing. Sri Lankan's innings was a tricky, was a, a, a tricky one. Uh, Australia opened uh, with their quick Stark and Cummins, uh, rather than relying uh, overly on the wicket-taking nous of uh, Nathan Lyon or Mitchell Swepson. And uh, Stark, actually the pick of the Australian bowlers in the end, picking up four wickets for 89 runs uh, from his 29 overs. But Sri Lanka batted for a long time, quite an attritional batting style, scoring a little over three and over, and then uh, soaking up 181 overs in the process, a total of 838 minutes um, batting. Only one real standout score of note, the 206 not out of Dinesh Chandamal uh, from 326 deliveries. And Nocky included 16 fours and five uh, sixes, uh, seeing his side uh, to a, a considerable first innings total. There were contributions from the top order. Uh, Dimeth uh, Karuna Ratner making 86, Kusal Mendes 85, Angelo Matthews chalking up a half century, and uh, Kimandu Mendes uh, also recording 61 from 137 balls. Although the, uh, the, the lower order failed to fire, um, Ramesh Mendes is 29 off of 98 deliveries uh, as he anchored one end whilst Dinesh Chandamal went on the charge. Their last uh, four wickets uh, came at an expensive 150 runs for Australia. Uh, Chandamal was able to work very well with his lower order, marshal the tail very nicely and ensure that a hugely competitive total was, was posted. Some huge amount of miles under the legs of the Australian bowlers. Stark and Cummins each bowled 30 overs, Mitchell Swepson uh, 38 and uh, Nathan Lyon 64 overs bowled in this match, conceding a total of 194 runs uh, for two wickets. Uh, Cam Green, Travis Head and Marnus Labuschagne also pitching in uh, with some deliveries but taking no wickets at all. Uh, Stark, the pick of the Australian bowlers, his four uh, coming for 89 runs in economy rate which is a tad over three. So a comprehensive and attritional batting display uh, from Sri Lanka. The old adage uh, in the subcontinent, you bat early, you bat big, and you bat your opposition out of the game, seems to ring true here. They tired out the Australian bowlers. It's an awful lot of time to spend in the field, particularly in Sri Lankan conditions. And they were unable uh, to, to marshal a substantial batting effort um, to, to combat uh, Sri Lanka's dominance. They got off to a relatively strong start. Warner and Kwaja put on a partnership of 49, 
uh, before Warner's wicket fell, uh, suggesting that this pitch might not be as bad for batting as might initially have been predicted. But what followed uh, was a fairly chaotic display from Australia's top order. Usman Khwaja uh, dismissed Court Fernando bowled Jaya Saria, one of his six victims in the second innings. Uh, Steve Smith uh, failing to trouble the scorers after four deliveries. Travis Head also falling uh, cheaply, continue a disappointing uh, test series for him thus far, with the exception of his, uh, his excellent bowling in the last match. And Green, Carey, Stark, Cummins, Lyon and Swepson again all falling away relatively cheaply. Australia's last 10 wickets uh, falling for 102 runs after that opening partnership of 49 between Warner and Kawaja. Jaya Saria's match, uh, Chandamal's batting, uh, really spelt the end for Australia in these Sri Lankan conditions. Um, you know, Cummins spoke afterwards quite eloquently about how much the team had learned from their defeat. And it has been a, a Certainly an interesting tour for Australia. Honours pretty much even after the T20Is, the ODIs and the Test Series. Both sides being able to go away with an awful lot of uh, awful lot of knowledge, awful lot of good experience and an awful lot of excellent cricket behind them. It is disappointing for Australia after their success in Pakistan. Certainly disappointing for McDonald, their new coach. Uh, lots of chatter about whether uh, an Australian team under Langer would have had quite the same impact. But it's certainly a, uh, a disappointing result for Australia, uh, but an excellent home, uh, home win for Sri Lanka in quite tricky and testing conditions, particularly given the political climate in the country. But we return next to more familiar shores, um, in particular uh, England's uh, Royal London One Day International win over South Africa. Um, a pretty comprehensive win for the England women's team in the end um, over South Africa at, Not at Northampton. Um, a maiden international century for Emma Lamb, um, some excellent bowling uh, from the experienced uh, England bowling attack, uh, Brunt, uh, Siver, Dean, Eccleston all getting in the wickets, and a slightly below par batting performance uh, from the South Africans. Batting first, uh, South Africa got off to a relatively steady start um, until Stain was dismissed by four, for 14 uh, LBW to Brunt's bowling. Goodall, Came and went pretty cheaply, managing only five runs before she was caught by Heather Knight off the bowling of Catherine Brunt. And in the middle order also fell away. Marazine Cap, uh, unable to replicate her good form in the uh, in the T20Is, uh, making only seven before she was clean bowled by Eccleston. A little bit of resurgence followed before Wolvart was dismissed, LBW off Dean's bowling for 43. And in the middle order uh, fired. Chloe Tryon um, made a fairly solid 88 off 73, um, ably supported by Nadine, uh, Nadine de Klerk in the middle, um, scoring 38 uh, before the lower order fell away uh, without really troubling the scorers. A final total of 218 from 47 overs. Uh, never really looked like enough uh, going up against this experienced England batting lineup. And so it eventually uh, <laughs> came to fruition. Um, Emma Lamb, playing her third um, England ODI, uh, made a, her first uh, test, uh, made her first ODI century, 102 from 97 balls, a fairly sedate pace um, by by most ODI standards, uh, but one that proved to uh, cement the innings and uh, and hone a comprehensive um, English victory over South Africa. She found a great deal of support from the middle order, although Tammy Beaumont uh, made a disappointing one from eight, being clean bowled by Cap. Uh, Dunkley, Cyber, Knight and Wyatt all pitched in uh, to see England home 
uh, with just under 20 overs to spare. 55 for Nat Siver to go with her uh, her four wickets in the first innings. Topping off a good all-round performance, uh, giving England a 4-2 lead so far in this multi-format series. Finally this evening, I will completely ignore uh, England's dismal performance against India in the first ODI and instead selectively focus on the uh, comprehensive England Lions victory over South Africa. I think uh, the two performances stand in quite stark contrast as England's uh, quote-unquote full-strength 50 overside uh, fell away uh, astoundingly cheaply to a 10-wicket defeat in South London and bowled out for a pretty measly 110, including Jasper Brummer's uh, 6 for 16 or 19 or something. Uh, the alleged second team, the England Lions, uh, blitzed their way uh, to a comprehensive victory over South Africa uh, in Somerset. Um, now, it's a, a famously uh, high-scoring ground down in Taunton, and I think with a couple of uh, Somerset players at the top of the order, it's uh, uh, no surprise, really, that the Lions team were able to press on. Um, some big-name county performers in this squad, let's not forget. Uh, Will Smead, Tom Banton, Sam Hain, Ben Duckett, Stevie Eskenazi, Tom Abel captaining um, with Adam Hose, Benny Howell, David Payne, uh, Derbyshire's George Scrimshaw, Jake Lintot, Rian Ahmed and Sam Cook all in this England line side. And it's not like they were facing a second string South African eleven either. Janaman Milan, Kyle Vereen, Reza Hendricks, Aidan Markram, Rassi van der Dusen, David Miller, Heinrich Klassen, Filoqueo, Pretorius, Maharaj, all turned out to this South African side. So it's pretty much a, a full-strength white ball team here um, uh, coming up against the England Lions. Now, South Africa chose to, uh, to, to bat first and uh, they got off to a pretty strong start. Yanaman Milan made a century, 103 off 116 before he fell to Rihan Ahmed's bowling. And there were a couple of half-centuries in the middle order as well. David Miller, an unbeaten 55, and Heinrich Klaassen, uh, 51 off of 35 uh, before he was caught Lintot bowled Payne. South Africa ended their 50 over um, for 318 for 9, a run rate of 6.36. Eminently respectable, certainly a, a good target for England to chase. Um, and there were some, some strong bowling displays. David Payne, uh, undoubtedly the standout performer for this Lions side. His 8 overs uh, costing only 39 runs and picking up 4 wickets in the process. Including that of Klaassen, Zondo, Fulakweo and Praetorius. Also something to be said for Rian Ahmed, um, had a wonderful uh, under-19s World Cup, a pretty good start to his uh, his first class and, t and uh, T20 career, and now he finds himself in an England Lions shirt, picking up three wickets, uh, Aidan Markram, uh, Rassi van der Dusen and Yanaman Milan, three experienced international players. His three wickets were expensive, uh, going at nine and over, 54 runs considered from his six overs, but a good start. Uh, three solid wickets for his international career. In response, unsurprisingly, given they opened with Smead and Banton, the England Lions got off to an absolute flyer. Will Smead scoring 90 from 56 before he was bowled by Filoqueo, and Tom Banton uh, chipping with 57 from 46 before he was caught off and bowled in the Maharaj. An opening partnership of 113, uh, giving a really clear statement of intent from this Lions side. With the exception of Sam Hain falling for 20, the rest of the middle order uh, saw the Lions home relatively easily. Uh, ben Duckett making 85 before he was caught by Maharaj off of Filoqueo's bowling. And Stevie Eskenazi 
shepherding the side home uh, with 52 from 36. Poor Tom Banton facing only a single ball, remaining not out at the end of the innings. A good chase then, 321 for four from 37 overs, uh, sees uh, England Lions home with about 70-odd balls remaining. A solid performance given the fairly dismal uh, ODI defeat in the first innings, uh, in the first ODI against India, something that I'm sure we'll pick up in much more detail on next week's show. But for now, uh, this is me signing off for the week in cricket. Plenty more to look forward to, plenty more coming up. A few more ODIs, uh, some World Cup qualifiers going on. Uh, Zimbabwe hosting Jersey, Singapore and Hong Kong, I believe, in Bulawayo for a series of matches. Um, but the cricket world moves on. And there promise to be some plenty of exciting games on the horizon. I certainly hope Butler can reverse his recent run of form and uh, show all the potential uh, that he's shown as Morgan's vice-captain for so long and see what this full-strength England ODI side can do. But for now, back to you, George. <laughs>